Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today we're going to talk about reform. So this is going to be a special uh, episode because we're going to have two different guests. So we'll have two interviews um, in this particular podcast. And um, we're going to talk about, in the first part, we're going to talk about political reform. In the second part, we'll talk a little bit about criminal justice reform. Um, I'll introduce the guest for the second half of the show and when we come back uh, for that second half. But I want to get right into it with our first guest who's going to talk about political reform and his name is Brian Winters. I do know that Brian is a former state legislator and that he is the founder of this group called the American Union, or you can look them up on the web as anamericanunion.com. Um, and that's basically it about Brian. Uh, Brian, uh, when I asked for his bio, uh, that's about all I got, but they did want me to say this, the American Union organized by Brian stands on the idea that poverty is not a hundred percent the person's fault and unconditional government financial support could be a key in diminishing many negative effects of the lifestyle. So obviously in, in this discussion about political reform, we're going to get into that. So without any further ado, let me introduce to the audience, Mr. Brian winners. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brian Winters. Brian, how are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me today. Um, you're a pretty modest fellow. Um, so I know you don't like talking about yourself. You like talking about the mission. So we're going to get right into the mission. And you have started this group called the American Union or an American Union, correct? Yeah, it's just the, the American Union. Okay. And and basically, uh, my summary of that is you are trying to reach voters, both Democrat and Republican and, and wherever, that have gotten frustrated with the system. And you're trying to organize them to be more of a political force. Now, that's the summary. You want to elaborate on that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the American Union is a union of swing voters. Swing voters are the people who have the most power in, in any election. They're the ones who decide who the winner is going to be. And um, the American Union is based on the, the preamble to the Constitution, trying to make that more relevant and reminding Americans what America is about. What are our duties to each other? Um, what are we supposed to be doing as Amer as Americans? And uh, you know, your listeners probably all learned the preamble back in grade school that uh, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, we're supposed to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. And we have gotten away from that as a nation. We've, let, um, let me stop so, you right there, because um, I understand we both kind of have a similar background. I was a state legislator in Mississippi for a time. And, and one of the things I used to stress to my colleagues was that the guide for legislation is based in the preamble. Either we're going to protect individual liberty or we're going to promote the general welfare or we're going to balance, promote some legislation that balances the two. Would you, would you agree with that assessment, being a former legislator? Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, that's the thing about duties is that there's a balancing act, right? You're, you do the best that you can with what the resources that you have. And so, yeah, the whole, all of our duties are, are those balancing act. Right. But to promote the general welfare, you gotta, you gotta secure a, a basic standard of, of living. Welfare is a specific meaning it means health, happiness, and prosperity. Right. And so we're failing to deliver that when tens of millions of people in this country are living in poverty. 
And, and so, yeah, what do you, so you go into a lot of different things. Um, and one of the things I, I, I've, I, I picked up on was that Congress, you basically say Congress needs some help in writing legislation. And so you're trying to encourage members and just citizens in general to get into the legislative drafting business. Go into go into detail on that for me. Yeah, no, thank you. That's that's essentially correct. Is that you know the, Congress doesn't write their laws; they have lobbyists that, that do a lot of it for them, and legislative drafters. And we, the people, can lobby for ourselves if we can agree what it is that we want to do. And so, for 2022, we have a legislative package that you can read on the website and AmericanUnion.com. It's 207 pages long, and it does three basic things. It ends poverty with universal basic income and a public option for health insurance. It ends mass incarceration with major criminal justice reform. And it ends the endless wars by bringing our troops home and refocusing our, our military. And, um, and you might recognize, you probably recognize these as Dr. King's triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism. That these are interconnected problems that are still with us today. And so we can address them in one legislative package. And by coming together as swing voters, it just takes a small percentage to control the balance of power in Washington, D.C. That gives us leverage. So the deal for Congress is if they put our legislative package on the president's desk before the midterms, they can earn our votes. Republicans, Democrats, we don't care. We just want to see some problems solved. And if they refuse, their opponents can earn our endorsement. So, yes, by getting into the legislative drafting business ourselves, we can create a new metric for voting besides party affiliation and make sure that we can have good, clean le legislation that represents the people uh, that's written outside the swamp of Washington, D.C. All right. So before we get into the details about those three tenants, um, remind our viewers, our, our listeners, what those six principles um, and you say it was outlined in a speech he gave beyond Vietnam, if I'm correct. It was like a week before he he was assassinated. Um, just go over those six tenets um, so that people understand when you when you say that you're basing this off Dr. King's uh, um, agenda. Uh, what he was going into with the poor people's campaign, all this other stuff, kind of, kind of elaborate on those six points for me. Yeah. So uh, he identified three evils, the triple evils of poverty, racism, militarism. And in his beyond Vietnam speech that he gave one year before he was assassinated, he said, our only hope today is to recapture the revolutionary spirit, go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo. And so that's what our our model for collaborative democracy does. That's what our legislative package does, is it challenges the status quo where Republicans and Democrats aren't looking out for us. And it declares eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism by trying to address some of the address some of the, these issues um, by fixing our, our United States code in a way that better serves the American people. Um, separately from that, though, Dr. King had six um, principles of nonviolence. I don't know if you want to you want to talk about those for strategies for nonviolent change. Yeah, just go over go over the six. You don't have to necessarily go into the details on, but just go over the six, and and we'll we'll so people will understand what that basic foundation is. Yeah, so six principles of nonviolence are that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. It seeks to defeat injustice, not people. That unearned suffering is a for a just cause is redemptive. That nonviolence chooses love over hate. And that it believes that the universe is on the side of justice. So those are his six principles of nonviolence. And uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on was number four. When you talk about the unearned suffering on the website, you you uh, say that members embrace this principle by engaging in a voluntary fast for peace on the 15th of each month. Um, yeah. Do you, 
when do you feel that our our commitment to politics needs to be more than just a reaction um that it needs to be something that we internalize and and then and then comprehend more effectively and then pursue the action. Do you understand why I'm, why I'm asking? No, no, could you rephrase that maybe? Yeah. So let me, let me, so what I'm asking is you, you, you ask, you ask members to fast, which is something that is not common with political movements, mostly political movements. And I explained to some of my friends recently, this particular election is about fear, right? So normally it's fear against hope, but this time the Democrats are trying to scare their constituents and the Republicans are trying to scare their constituents. And that's strictly trying to get an emotive reaction. What I've agreed from just that fourth part you're talking about is that you want people to, to have more of a, a spiritual connection, if that's an accurate word, more of an internal connection with politics than just reacting to what you see. If you, you know, when, when people in, in, in religious context fast, it's a, it's a cleansing. It's a, not just a physical cleansing, but it's also a, a moral cleansing to, to get bad thoughts out your mind. And then you, you start going in the steps. And so the question I'm asking is, do you think people need to do more, even if they don't follow this strategy about the 15th very month, but, but people need to figure out a way to internalize and 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 approach politics with more of an open mind than just being scared into voting. Yeah, it's easy to say what you don't want. It's easy to just vote no on everything and just oppose the other what the other party does. Um, but it's much harder to actually say what you're for. And you and I have the same experience as as legislators, right? Is that you know you you've got to actually vote for something at the end of the day. You actually got to come together around what do you actually want the laws to be. Right. And so that's that's this legislative strategy. Is what are, what are the problems we want to solve and how do we how do we solve them? And so the preamble tells us what are the problems that we should be solving, the things that we should be doing. And the legislation is a solution. It's not a perfect solution any more than the constitution was perfect. But we the status quo is broken. The status quo needs to be challenged. And so we can unlock a lot of human potential by ending poverty, ending mass incarceration, ending the endless wars, and better equip the American people to, to solve many of our problems on our own. Um, but first, we got to work together to, to establish that foundation. And so the FAST is a way of building that, that shared foundation. We, you know, you know, in a nation 3,000 miles wide, you can't all gather in one place. Um, but fasting is free; doesn't cost any money. Have you, ever, Eric? Have you ever tried fasting for any oh, yeah. period of time? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. And so you know that you know it's not necessarily difficult as much as it takes. And so it's putting that, manifesting that shared intention, um, that that makes this a fast of moral pressure, that we can inspire our fellow Americans to work together and inspire Congress to to do better to get back to those, those constitutional duties. Okay. And I, and I, I deliberately wanted to set that because very few movements now really it's, it's all about the, the fight and it's not about the preparation. (laughs) And, and um, you know, one of the beauties, the fact that you have drawn inspiration from people like Dr. King who drew inspiration from uh, Gandhi, right? Is that yes. you understand that it's it's got to be anything that has to happen has to be a movement. It can't just be an event. You know, an election day is an event, but leading up to that election or leading up to certain legislation being passed or even defeated, it's got to be a movement. It's got to be a collection of people, a collection of, of, of thought to, to strategize and, and energize, educate, and then motivate and activate. 
right? So that's that was that was when I I wanted to to highlight that particular part of the six because that's something that you don't really hear a lot, and so I'm, I'm glad that you you took the time to explain that. Um, and and is it? Go ahead. I'm gonna say so. Yeah, you you recognize that. That's how I I began studying. I started with studying Gandhi, and then um, then started studying Dr. King after that, as well as Cesar Chavez and other institutes. But this is how one of the ways that Gandhi united his people. The the British kept them divided, kept them polarized into Hindus and Muslims, and persuaded them to fight amongst themselves. And Gandhi used national days of fasting to bring people together to that a shared self-sacrifice um, created a common experience and, and rallied people together. And, and you may know that our, the founding fathers did the, the same thing as well. Um, just in the days of fasting as a way to bring people together, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. Um, so it has an American tradition as well, but you're correct. It is not very common these days. America is a nation that, um, has a look, there's a lot of instant gratification, um, culture. Uh, today in our country. And that that leads to a lot of separate problems. And so the fasting, the idea of delaying gratification once a month um, is a way of also trying to help improve American culture. Um, so not just a political solution, but a culture and cultural and social solution as well. All right. That's cool. So let's let's get back to the policy wonk aspect of this now. Yeah, sure. uh, um, one, let's, I'm a, I want to highlight particular things since we only have limited time, but I, I wanted to, the first thing, the ending poverty, uh, you talk about a universal basic income of $300 a week for adults and a hundred dollars a week for children. Now there was a gentleman that ran for president, um, in 2020, Andrew Yang, who, uh, proposed an idea similar to this. And it got him some traction. It got him some attention. But people were kind of balancing out whether this is something I'm really for or is this really, really serious. It's just a, a, just a gimmick. And I know that in Stockton, California, I forget the young man's name, but uh, the mayor there has instituted something. I don't think it's weekly. I think it's a monthly supplement that he gives to underserved uh, citizens in the city. And then Yang was saying that this was modeled after uh, what they do in the United Kingdom, uh, that they they have a, a a supplemental income for people that are living in poverty. Um, what is your vision of how this is going to be enacted if this legislation passes? That's a great question. You know, there's, there's 50 different policies in this legislative package, but universal basic income is definitely one of the biggest, and uh, it, it supports a lot of the rest of the the changes. Um, the reason for universal basic income is a couple of reasons. One is that it puts everybody on the same page. It, all Americans would receive an unconditional $300 a week um, to, to do whatever works best for you. It's not the government micromanaging your life and saying, look, you need to spend this money on food or you need to spend this money on rent. It says, look, your government trusts you. Here's $300 a week. To, to make sure that you can meet your basic needs. And by including everyone, not having a bunch of bloated bureaucracy that tries to figure out how much money you made last year, whether or not you're deserving or undeserving, by making it a universal program, um, it increased, increases trust uh, among society and stops us from being being divided. You know, you probably remember Ronald Reagan's, uh, you know, speeches about welfare queens and things like that when he was he was running for president, trying to divide people and uh, to bring us all together. Universal basic income uh, can do that. As far as the economics, though, yeah, we need a way to address um, to address wealth inequality in this country, a way to um, revitalize you know, impoverished neighborhoods communities. And universal basic income will create jobs by giving people spending money to go spend in their local communities. Um, you know, as, as automation and as AI replace the need for human labor today, which is a good thing, it means that we have the same number of people competing for less and less jobs, which means it's driving down the cost of labor. Well, the wages are stagnant. 
And so universal basic income is a way of rebalancing the equation so that people can quit their second job or maybe a family decides that one parent can stay home with the kids. And then these are things that, that pay further dividends of you know, having a parent that, that stays home with the kids versus having two working parents. Um, so universal basic income is a way of um, helping rebalance the economy and um, unlock human potential. So is this, is this income going to be taxed or non-taxed? Um, yeah, there's still, there's still taxes. One of the, the ways that we pay for this is through a 12% value added tax. So a consumption tax. Okay. And, and because as you know, you know, people who make a lot of money find various ways to hide their income and avoid paying taxes, but they still want to spend their money. And so as they spend their money, then that money, they, they pay the consumption tax and it goes back to, to recirculate the money as, as universal basic income. Okay. So for a family of four, yes, that break-even point is about a quarter million dollars a year, where if they're spending more than a quarter million dollars a year, they're going to pay back their $41,600 a year in UBI and higher taxes. But it would ensure that everybody starts at the poverty line at least, and then they can use capitalism to build as high as they want from there. Um, is there any, would there be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking legislatively now, uh, devil in the details kind of question. So is there any incentive for people to save this money? Yes, because it, it's a consumption tax. Um, you save your money, you invest your money, then you're not, uh, you wouldn't be paying the consumption tax. Gotcha. And, and the reason why I asked that, because there used to be a program called individual development accounts. And the goal was to set up an account for people, say like, a, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever. Uh, the goal was to at least keep a thousand dollars in the bank for a period of years, two to three years. And then after that, the government would match that thousand dollars with, you know, five thousand dollars. And then those people could use that money to, you know, make a down payment on a home or a car or you know, go back to school, whatever they wanted to do. But they, the, the key was to get them in the habit of keeping at least a thousand dollars in savings in an account. And so I was wondering if there was any thought process to, in that legislation to bring back an incentive like that, uh, to help people build their wealth by saving too. Uh, no, there's not a, a specific, um, saving bonus program. Okay. Um, one of the ways the universal basic income would be delivered is that the United States Treasury would set up bank accounts, digital bank accounts for every American. Okay. And bring everyone into the banking system. Because um, as you know, there's a lot, millions of people who aren't in the banking system and get, get or, you know, payday loans and things like that. They, they prey on, on people um, who, need, who need access to those kind of things. And so by having the U.S. Treasury set up set up accounts, having the post office offer basic banking services and, you know, depositing $300 a week into people's accounts um, can end poverty and, and help people avoid a lot of the, uh, the predatory bank fees and, and loans and things like that. Okay. And that's, and that's a good target to go after because that's another issue, you know, that especially in the African-American community dealing with predatory lending and all that, um, you know, the history of redlining, all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's important, it, you know, I, I, that people get into, uh, safer financial practices rather than just, you know, going to the check cashing places and all those kind of things. Um, let me, uh, yeah, you, you probably know that Martin Luther King supported a guaranteed annual income. Um, right. Back in the 60s. Right. Recognize that the, the poor transformed into purchasers could, could solve a lot of their problems on their own. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that and America being the largest consumer market in the world, it makes sense that people are allowed to be consumers. It doesn't make sense for 25 percent of the population to not really engage in that in that market, which would I think would stabilize the economy. But 
I didn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't that, that great in economics. So anyway, um, I wanted to touch on one other thing before we ran out of time. Um, under the end of endless wars, you specifically say that we need to um, reduce the hundreds of foreign military bases, the nuclear stockpile, and the military budget back to 2005 levels. Um, when I ran for the United States Senate, that was one of my issues about, I felt that we needed to close the foreign bases before we closed the American bases. Um, mm-hmm. That should have been more of a priority, but, but talk a little bit about that and how that impacts Americans. Sure. Um, I mean, you recognize that the, the framers, they, they were very concerned about standing armies, about a, a bloated, bloated military. You know, that's why they, um, they restricted Congress from appropriating money for an army for more than two years at a time. Um, and today, a lot of what the military does, especially, is, is it sort of fills the same niche that universal basic income does. It pushes money out into every congressional district, into lots of rural parts of, of America, um, and it creates jobs that way. And so if we're going to downsize the military, we need to, to recognize what, what it actually, the, the function that it serves in the economy and make sure that we're replacing it with something else. If we're going to close down the bomb-making factories, universal basic income is there to make sure that you know, nobody's falling into poverty if they lose their, their job there. Uh, as far as the, the foreign military bases, you know, we've got seven, eight hundred military bases around the globe. We've got ten times as many as, as the rest of the world has combined. And so the way that this legislative package would address it is by requiring the Secretary of Defense to hold referendums around these local military bases and ask the people, do you want us here? And if the people say, no, we don't want you here, then we respect their decisions and, and close those bases. And that seems like the low-hanging fruit, the place to start is, let's find out where people actually want us around the world. Um, and so that would be that would take place over the first two years after this was adopted. As far as reducing America's nuclear stockpile, um, it would be cut in half uh, over a five-year period. Uh, right now, the United States and Russia have 90% of the world's um, nuclear weapons, and a 50% reduction still leaves us more than enough to defend the United States. But um, it it establishes that look, nobody wins with a nuclear war, and so somebody's got to make the first the first step here and um, be willing to de-escalate. And so we can lead by example and say, look, we don't want a nuclear war. And we're going to cut our, our stockpile in half to demonstrate our commitment to that. All right. And and um, we only have uh, a few minutes, but um, talk to me real quick about, um, let's see, repeal the mandatory minimum sentences when you're dealing with ending mass incarceration. Yeah, so there's a lot of criminal justice reform provisions um, in the ending mass incarceration plank. Um, this is a federal legislative package, so you're sort of limited in what you can you can persuade the states to do, um, and you can you can sort of threaten them by withholding funds. But as far as ending mandatory minimums, this legislative package would strike them from the United States Code, so that judges could judge judges um, judges could say you know, decide how long it wouldn't address the maximum penalties, but it would allow the judge to um, decide each case on its merit. Um, Cause as, as you, you probably know, especially with the, the get tough on crime of the nineties the kind of thing, uh, mandatory minimums drove a lot of, of really long prison sentences and they don't, they don't work. They don't serve a function other than taking people out of communities and warehousing them. Um, often in rural districts as a, a jobs program. Um, and we've got 2 million Americans who wake up behind bars every single day here. And we are not the most evil country in the world. Something has just gone terribly wrong with our criminal justice system. And we can fix it. We can address it if we come together as Americans and agree on a set of solutions and rally together as a union of swing voters. 
because just a small, small percentage, three and a half percent is enough to control the balance of power in Washington. And, um, you know, and running as an independent, running as a third party, third parties don't work because you need 35 percent to win. Right. But a union of swing voters can do a lot better on a national level with a much, much smaller percentage. Right. And so and that's basically what you're asking for is 10 percent of that 35 um, that you would need to if you just exercise your right as a swing voter, you could determine any federal election, whether it's at the the president or or U.S. Senate or Congress. So not not any federal uh, election, because a lot of them, especially House races are gerrymandered. Uh, We're focused on 10 states in 2022 that have U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, I'm in North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania. You know, there's a lot of these that are very close. Georgia, um, where small percentages decide decide the outcome. Okay. And um, in one set of legislative demands all across. All right, Brian. Well, it's like the audio, the audio kind of faded out on you. And that that's probably my cue to, to, to go ahead and wrap this thing up. But for, for everybody that's listening, go to anamericanunion.com and it'll lay out everything uh, that we just kind of touched on, but it'll lay it out in detail uh, as far as the, the three tenants and further explains, you know, the, the six principles that Dr. King talked about, about nonviolence and really gets into what an American union.com is about. So Brian, I, I appreciate the time uh, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. And we're back. So I hope that um, the previous interview was fascinating and uh, that you learned something from that. And now we're going to get into the second interview, which is a gentleman named Mark Bello. And uh, let me read you his bio so we can go ahead and get that started. Um as an attorney and civil justice advocate, Arthur Mark M. Bello draws upon over 40 years of courtroom experience in his Zachary Blake legal thriller series. A Michigan native, Mark received his BA in English literature from Oakland University and his law degree from Thomas M. Cooley Law School. After working extremely high profile legal cases, Mark wanted to give the public a front row glimpse of what victims face when standing for justice. Combining his legal experience and passion for justice with a creative writing style, Mark not only brings high-quality legal services to his clients, but captivating novels to his readers. When Mark's not writing legal or political novels, he writes and posts about fairness and justice in the civil justice system on his website, Legal Examiner, and Not Fake News. In his spare time, Mark enjoys traveling and spending time with his family. Mark and his wife, Toby, have four children and eight grandchildren. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Mark Bello. All right, and so we're back again, and I've got Mark Bello on the show. Mark, how are you doing? I'm good, Eric. How are you? I'm doing fine. So, Mark, I wanted to talk to you. You've you've had a lot of um, experience as a writer and as a lawyer. And so I wanted to kind of get your feel on um, where where do you think we are now in the criminal justice system in America? Well, that's, a, that's an awful broad question. It, it, that, and, it's, a, and it's deliberate why I did that, because we're going to parse <laughs> through a little bit. It, it, it depends on who you are. It depends on what you did. It depends on what 
jurisdiction you live in. It depends on who your judge is. It depends on what kind of lawyer you can afford. So it depends on a lot of different things that uh, a lot of times the person accused has no control over. Um, my, my assessment is that the criminal justice system tends to be quite unfair depending on who you are and what your economic circumstances are. Okay. And that's the, that's the honest answer to the question you asked me. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're going to delve into that a little bit, but I want to read a quote and uh, this is from an interview you did. It says, quote unquote, to kill a mockingbird is the most important social justice novel of our time. America loves a happy ending. However, for many of us, life does not produce happy endings. Tom Robinson is the ultimate example of racial injustice, and his book was a major reason I decided to become a lawyer. Sadly, while America has progressed as one nation since Harper Lee wrote her brilliant novel, recent murders of innocent African-Americans and divisive rhetoric from our leaders demonstrate that we have a long way to go on race. Um, why do you why do you feel that that inequity is is in place as of now? Why do you feel that what was a fictional story is still a real life story for a lot of people in America today? Well, the easy answer to that is because there's still a lot of racism in America. Uh, it's it's um, less obvious, for lack of a better way to say it. One, one good thing about Donald Trump uh, if you want to call it good, um, is that he took the underbelly of racism, the undercurrent, uh, unstated uh, element, and he freed them, if you will, to come out of their hiding places. Now, why do I say that's a good thing? Because America is under the impression that racism is yesterday's news. And racism is by no means, as is being proven day after day after day, incident after incident after incident, it is no way yesterday's news, it's today's news and tomorrow's news. And until we learn to come together as a, as a people, and I mean as American people, we can have differences of opinion and we can talk about differences of opinion. But when we start shooting people over our differences or or killing mass numbers of people like what happened in Buffalo the other day, um, especially by someone so young, so, someone had to indoctrinate. We were talking about this off the air. Someone had to indoctrinate this kid beyond what politics is doing. You can talk about Tucker Carlson and you can talk about Donald Trump and you can talk about the Republican Party. Uh, and you can talk about exclusiveness versus inclusiveness or replacement theory or whatever you want to talk about. But somebody has to make a kid like that at 18, uh, a person who would go and would walk into a grocery store and shoot uh, 13 people and kill 10 innocent, innocent people. Um, and until we come to terms with um, that kind of racism and that kind of violence, on top of it, um, we're we're going to continue to have these problems. All right. I, I don't I I don't have the answer to why. I don't. Uh, you know. I think it comes from uh, your parents. That's a simplistic way of saying it. But uh, you know, my parents were wonderful human beings, and they taught me the difference between right and wrong. They encouraged me to get an education. They encouraged me to become a, a professional, which I did. Uh, they encouraged all three of their children, and I was the only one that that uh, went as far as law school. We're, we're all college educated, um, so I mean, it's not like you you hit on what you're trying to do with every kid, but. The, the furthest thing from my mind as a kid growing up was behaving in the manner of a kid like that. Right. Um, and uh, while 
while I would candidly admit that my father, uh, a, a person born in his tw in the twenties, was somewhat of a bigot, as all white men of his age were. He certainly didn't express hatred. It wasn't it wasn't that kind of bigotry. It it was more. Um, there's a place for this person and a place for that person, and that person's place is not the same place as, as this person's is. But he, but he, I mean, the idea that that um, they're not worthy of life—that's a whole different level of bigotry. And I, I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for it. But I can say, as I said in the quote you read. It's, it's just sad that Harper Lee wrote such a book so many years ago, and we're still wrestling with the same kinds of problems. Tom Robinson was an innocent man accused of a crime he didn't commit because he was black and because a white person was more credible simply because of her race than this innocent black person was now that's shocking yes yes but in the context of what's going on in the criminal justice system today it's still happening that's even more shocking and i i i don't have an answer for it i'm as frustrated as you are well i you you try to Alleviate like you, you went over like some five steps that you felt would help try to make society more inclusive, more equitable, um, more representative. And one of the one of the complaints I got from people, you know, either watching or you know, watching the news or paying attention on social media or whatever, and I try to address it on the podcast you know, from a law enforcement perspective. But one of the things people were upset about was the fact that this young man and the young man before in Charleston, South Carolina, are alive to be arrested. And they were pointing out all of the black young black men and women who didn't have that opportunity. And you, you did say that we need to tear up the current manual on policing and police hiring and training that you want to increase diversity and community outreach, foster an atmosphere of cooperation between citizens and the police. Is that, I mean, when we're starting at the very point, whereas why is it that some, some folks are getting arrested and some folks are getting killed? Is it hard to even try to establish that, that relationship that you talk about? Yes, uh, um, but that doesn't mean you don't make the effort. Uh, you could even say it's virtually impossible, but you still want to make the effort. I mean, I, I can't explain to you other than racism. And, and racism is such an interesting term. I mean, what is it? Is it how broad is it? And, and how many different things does it encompass? But uh, let's talk about it in terms of policing. You've got George Floyd who gets accused, not, not convicted. He's got a, a, a judge, jury, and executioner in, in Derek Chauvin. But all he, all he is accused of doing is something a shopkeeper thought he uh, passed the $20 counterfeit bill. I don't even know if he did that, do you? No, as a matter of fact, the shopkeeper said it was a mistake. To this day, we don't know whether it was counterfeit. But, mm -hmm. So he, he does that. Let's say he's guilty. Let's give the devil his due. He's guilty of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Derek Chauvin kneels on his neck for 20 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever, nine minutes and 54 seconds. Or whatever. I remember the number really well back, back in the day. Uh, nine minutes and something seconds, 68, 58, 58, whatever it was. Um, not that it's not important, it is. I don't mean to, but he kneels on his neck 
and he sentences him to death. In trespassing a $20 bill was shooting up a grocery store, uh, injuring th uh, three people and killing 10. And somehow this shooter is alive. Racism? Uh, circumstance? Luck? I don't know. I just, it's startling. It's, it's mind-boggling that George Floyd's dead and this kid's alive. And to your point about Charleston, same thing. Um, now, in fairness, clearly, a cop like Derek Chauvin is out there, exists, and has this kind of potential to do harm to citizens. We can assume, you and I, that more so to black citizens than to white citizens. Although we seem to know George Floyd and had a thing for him. Um, at least that's what I uh, surmised from reading right. stuff. Um, Derek Chauvin was not the cop in this recent Buffalo case. And maybe these cops are just better cops and did a better job in um, the, using the incident when the time came to confront the suspect than a guy like Derek Chauvin did. And I think, I think just like we're having a conversation about the broad term of racism, we, have, we also have to um, stop typing people in a certain way. All blacks are this, all racists are that, all white supremacists are that, all cops are that. There are good cops, there are bad cops. There are good white people, there are bad white people. There are good black people, there are bad white people, but black people. Um, we're all different. And uh, the idea that one cop treats George Floyd this way and another cop treats the Buffalo shooter, whose name I can't remember, I, uh, and I don't want to remember, um, uh, isn't surprising to me. I, I, I think you have a, a better set of policing in the latter case than you did in the former case. Now, do I think that there's a racist element to that? Do I think the black person might get shot and killed quicker than the white person? Statistics say yes. Statistics say that a black person is much more likely to get shot in an incident with the police than um, a white person is. I wrote a book about that called Betrayal in Black, which is about a uh, police shooting an innocent black man in a traffic stop shooting simply because the black person told him he had a gun in his car, a registered legal handgun. He wanted him to know so he could defuse any potential violence. And instead, the officer panicked and shot him. Um, and that, that really, and that, and that really happened in the Philando Castile case. That's, and that's, the book was the book was inspired by Philando Castile. I was yeah. going to say that just until you did. Um, and I wanted to tell that story because I I don't think the same thing would have happened had the driver been white and the officer uh, been white. Um, there's a there's certainly a, a, a racial dynamic between uh, cops and black people, and that by the way that applies to black cops also. Black cops seem to um, have a thing about black citizens also. Don't know why. You might have a better insight on that than I do, but but um, there's certainly plenty of statistics and evidence that black citizens, when they're accused of a crime, are treated in a different way than white citizens are. So 
you know, we, we, we have to do a better job of trying to get, and it's really an, an issue, you know, from my training and, and other things that you have to look at what you're seeing in front of you, what information you're given beforehand, before you arrive on the scene, your actual eyeballs assessing the scene and not really get into is this a black guy? Is this a white guy? Is this an Asian guy? Is this a Latino guy? And have these preconceived notions. And I think, you know, the training I've been through tries to get you to that point. Um, but I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I assume other officers are getting the training and I just assume that there's an override function in their brain that decides, well, I'm going to have these preconceived notions anyway. Um, that's just kind of my sense of it, but you know, I don't know. Um, I don't mind, uh, you know. Again, I, I, I think I remember uh, Avenue Q, uh, the play on Broadway uh, um, with with the. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but no, the I'm actors not. come out with the the actors come out with puppets. Okay. And there's and there's a song in it called "Everyone's a Little Bit Racist." Hmm. And I and I think that that's true. I think we're all uh, a little bit racist. Your point, though, I think whether you have preconceived notions or not, you're a cop. Your job is policing injustice. It's not to perpetuate injustice. Right. And whether you have a preconceived notion or not, do your job and do it and do it in a in a fair minded way. And I don't think we're seeing that on the streets. And I don't care where you live. I don't think we're seeing that on the streets. Yeah. Period. What about the bail, the the bonding system, the, the cash bails and all that? The ACLU and other organizations have really stressed um, doing away with these, these, these cash uh, bail situations. Um, you know, excessive bonds for people. Um, do you do you think that uh, that helps as far as uh, alleviating the problem of incarceration, or do you think it um, helps with allowing people to get? Uh, get situated for representation or whatever. I, I, the reason why I asked that is because it's like, I see it as an, I see it as a way to get people out of jail that would be in jail only because they just can't afford to bond. Right. And, you know, right. but then there's, there's this whole other thing where, you know, dealing with people, okay, well they bond out and then they don't show up to court. Um, you know, so that's kind of the, the other hand, cause it's like, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to pay somebody's bond, but then as an, a whole nother thing, how, how do you, how do you address that concern that I have about making sure that we don't make the bonds where people can't afford them, but at this, you know, um, for certain offenses and then especially oh. misdemeanor offenses, but then making sure that they still honor that commitment and come back to court. Well, I'm going to give you a completely different perspective. Okay. Uh, way out of left field. And I, and, and I, I'm no, um, you know, left wing radical. I, I, I would probably characterize myself as a moderate Democrat. Okay. Um, and there are some things about, uh, Republicanism, not Trumpism, but Republicanism, that I, as a uh, white citizen, could embrace. Uh, uh, like, for instance, I don't think government should be the be-all, end-all answer for all of its citizens. I think we ought to be suffer a little more self-reliant. I don't think uh, I don't necessarily support the concept of quote big government uh and i and i think a lot of money's being wasted those are probably more 
um, right-wing attitudes than left-wing attitudes. But as to bail, um, I'm, a, I'm a big defender of the Constitution. And what I hate about so-called constitutionalists today is that they say they are, but they aren't. Like the Second Amendment is bastardized into this suggestion that you can't do anything to restrict the flow of guns or the types of guns people use. And that's nonsense. That's not what the Second Amendment says. The Second Amendment simply says that you have the right to arm yourself if the government treats you in an oppressive manner. That's essentially what it, it, it amounts to. And the gun of choice at the time was a musket, a singular double shot musket. Contrast that to what this kid used in the Buffalo uh, grocery store shooting. Who needs a gun like that? Right. So this, this suggestion that the Second Amendment prevents um, gun control is nonsense. It's just nonsense. And anybody who says it isn't is simply lying about what the Constitution says. But the Constitution does say, for instance, the Sixth Amendment, that you're innocent until proven guilty. I take those words very seriously. I say that the government or the prosecutor or the accuser has to prove you guilty. So if you're innocent until proven guilty, why do you have to pay bail in the first place? Why aren't you simply innocent? And your motive or your incentive to show up to court is to get the opportunity to prove for once, once and for all that you're innocent. You're presumed innocent. Now you get to prove it. Now you don't have to prove it. They have to prove you guilty. I'm not changing the standards. I'm simply saying, to your point, there's an unequal bail system, that's for sure. Um, a, a, a person of means can put up bail in a second, especially when it's a 10% bond and it doesn't cost them anything. A person to, uh, who has no means can be given small bail, but still not be able to, to afford it. Why should that person sit in jail for three to six months waiting for trial? The other guy's out because you can afford it. And there's a there's an income inequity there that is unjustified for two reasons. One, on the severity of the crime, and two, on the economic injustice of it all. So my attitude is, if you're truly innocent until proven guilty, there shouldn't be a bail system at all. Now, you know, how do you get people to show up in court? I don't know. Ankle monitors sound good to me. Put an ankle monitor on everybody who's accused of a crime and required to come back to court. Unless, unless you're accused of a violent crime, and even then, I, I, I know it's a tough issue to say, let's release this murderer back out into society. But if we truly are a system of laws and a system of innocent until proven guilty, then rush him to trial. Do something else other than um, this whole concept of bail, where uh the haves can get out of prison and the have-nots cannot uh I, I, it just it's it's another it's another example eric of, of this and, and I, it's not necessarily an example of racism because um you know to say all poor people are black or all rich people are white we know that's not true um so it's not necessarily a race issue it tends to be because let's just say a higher percentage of black people 
are uh, living in poverty than percent than the same percentage of white people. But it's it's a it's a poor rich issue, not a black white issue. And I just I, I just don't think the system should work that way. All right. Well, let me. I'm gonna throw out one more thing because we've got maybe about a couple minutes left. So I, like, I love to talk. Can you tell? Yeah, yeah. It has, it has good, and I wish we had more time. I, I but I, I want to. One of your five points, you said, use peaceful protests, the courts, and the legislature to train change America. Do not resort to violence and lawlessness. Lawlessness. Yep. Do you see? Do you see an America? that's following that suggestion or do you see in America more readily going into the lawlessness and violence aspect of it? I, I think we're heading in the wrong direction. I, I don't necessarily think that that's a federal government problem. Um, uh, President Biden is, is, is having a difficult time. Um, uh, there's a lot of things going on that are affecting the quality of his presidency. And and he's taking a, a, a lot of heat. I think he's well-intentioned. But one thing I think that our leaders could do better than they do is I think they need to declare war on what we're talking about. I, I think they need to declare war on this divisive rhetoric and politics that we're in. and. Um, I, I, maybe community by community, but we need to get together as a society and, and discuss our differences. Um, I, I don't have the solutions. I'm not. I'm not smart enough. But uh, but a symposium on justice and fairness in America. Um, a symposium on guns and, and gun sensibility. Uh, you can't convince me that the Second Amendment says the things the Second Amendment advocates say it says. Um, it just doesn't. And it's not, it's not unconstitutional to control the flow of guns, the severity of guns, and the proliferation of guns in America, it just isn't. There's a constitutional way to do this, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, to, to the to the quote you you uh, just read, I think it's an all-encompassing issue. I, we the people have to get together and and solve this problem. You and I, you and I together, uh, talking today. Uh, you know, we may not agree on everything, you and I. Uh, you come at it from a, 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 a perspective of a black man. I come up at it as a, from the perspective of a Jewish white man. And, and we all know that Jews have had their share of uh, either anti-Semitism or, or uh, some form of racism. The only difference is I don't wear it on my skin the way you do. And I'm going to have to have that. And Mark, I'll let that be the last word, man, because we, we're hitting a hard break. But I appreciate your time. Y'all go to markbello.com. Mark, 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 Mark That's right, markmbello.com. Check out his books. Check out his his uh, his his ideas and so on. Mark, thank you for this show, man. I appreciate it. All right, so I just wanted to real quick, uh, as you saw in these these interviews, technology and time, you know, restricts us a lot of times from doing things. So, apologize first interview if you didn't hear the end of what he was saying, um, Mr. Winters, and then uh, Brian, and then with uh, Mark. Hopefully, we got you know, everything in on time. If you just didn't hear me at the end, that's great. Um, but Brian, again, Brian Winters, the website that he's affiliated with is an AmericanUnion.com. And then with Mr. Bellow, with Mark, because he'll jump on me for calling Mr. Bellow, 
Uh, it's Mark, M-A-R-K-M-Bello.com. And he has a series of books that, you know, he gleans from uh, real life and he puts his perspective and his creative touch on it to make it uh, an enjoyable fiction read for you. So, and, and still addresses issues of the day. So um, check out both of those guys' websites. Um, continue to listen to the podcast. Um, it's, it's very rare that I can get two guests to be available at the same time. Uh, and, you know, we're going to continue to do more to get people, doesn't matter where they're from, what community they represent. They understand that we're going to talk about things that impact the African-American community and all the guests have really been sensitive and cognizant of that up until this point. And, um, and we're just going to keep pressing. So until next time, guys, thanks.